Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales, week two of Nikolai Gogol. Uh, we are going to have The Cloak. We are going to have Memoirs of a Madman. We're going to have The Nose. We are going to have some other stuff in there. We're going to have, uh, let's see, what's that other one? I got to scan through my notes here. Uh, uh, Inspector General. We're going to break that up throughout the week, so... You're going to hear a uh, play of Inspector General throughout the week. And you know what? None of this could be possible without our friends over at bunnyslippers.com. Get yourself some Highland Cow slippers. They are... I'm recording my living room right now. Actually, technically, I think I'm in the kitchen. But I'm on linoleum floors and my feet are nice and warm. Why? Because I've got some woolly, woolly Highland Cow slippers and oh man do they keep my feet warm and i look cool because i'm wearing my bad news bears three-quarter length sleeve because it's kind of chilly in here you know not not cold enough that i need to put a sweater on but then i've got a three-quarter length sleeve shirt on and a hoodie yeah i've got a hoodie on i've got a black clock audio tales hoodie on from our shop over at pgttcm.com so you know, found item clothing, Black Clock Audio Tales, pgttcm.com. Shop at the places that support us and support us by shopping at our store. If you want to support us, you can go to Facebook, you can go to Twitter, you can go to Instagram, you can go to any place that you find podcasts and rate and review us. Let people know because honestly that helps and you know what i've had other people pretty much vandalize <laughs> vandalize uh my uh itunes because they had problems with me that were totally unrelated to the podcast because i didn't want to review a book or because i uh like an asshole uh i'm, I'm sorry a jerk uh posted some email that was like them trying to be cool and being like how I should have them on my show and it's like that's not what kind of podcast this is I don't just have writers who write fiction and horror come on the show but hey if you know stuff if you look at our schedule and you see something that you want to talk about contact me on Facebook or Instagram and I'll get you on the show and you know what that's the best way to find us and help out the show by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm. Here we go with some Google. All right. Memoirs of a Madman by Nikolai Gogol. Translated from the Russian by Claude Field. Recording by Martin Rato. Memoirs of a Madman by Nikolai Gogol. Translated from the Russian by Claude Field. October 3rd. A strange occurrence has taken place today. I got up fairly late, and when Mara brought me my clean boots, I asked her how late it was. When I heard it had long struck ten, I dressed as quickly as possible. To tell the truth, I would rather not have gone to the office at all today, for I know beforehand that our department chief will look as sour as vinegar. For some time past, he's been in the habit of saying to me, Look here, my friend, there's something wrong with your head. You often rush about as though you were possessed, 
then you make such confused abstracts out of the documents that the devil himself cannot make them out. You write the title without any capital letters and add neither the date nor the docket number. The long-legged scoundrel, he's certainly envious of me because I sit in the director's workroom and mend his excellency's pens. In a word, I should not have gone to the office if I'd not hoped to meet the accountant and perhaps squeeze a little advance out of this skinflint. A terrible man, this accountant. As for his advancing one's salary once in a way, you might sooner expect the skies to fall. You may beg and beseech him and be on the very verge of ruin. This great devil won't budge an inch. At the same time, his own cook at home, as all the world knows, boxes his ears. I really don't see what good one gets by serving in our department. There are no plums there. In the fiscal and judicial offices, it's quite different. There, some ungainly fellow sits in a corner and writes and writes. He has such a shabby coat and such an ugly mug that one would like to spit on both of them. But you should see what a splendid country house he has rented. He would not condescend to accept a gilt porcelain cup as a present. You can give that to your family doctor, he would say. Nothing less than a pair of chestnut horses, a fine carriage, or a beaver for coat worth three hundred roubles would be good enough for him. And yet he seems so mild and quiet, and asks so amiably, Please lend me your penknife. I wish to mend my pen. Nevertheless, he knows how to scarify a petitioner till he has hardly a whole stitch left on his body. In our office, it must be admitted, everything is done in a proper and gentlemanly way. There's more cleanliness and elegance than one will ever find in government offices. The tables are mahogany, and everyone is addressed as sir, and truly, were it not for this official propriety, I should long ago have sent in my resignation. I put on my old cloak and took my umbrella as a light rain was falling. No one was to be seen on the streets except some women who had flung their skirts over their heads. Here and there one saw a cabman or a shopman with his umbrella up. Of the higher classes one only saw an official here and there. One I saw at the street crossing and thought to myself, ah, my friend. You're not going to the office, but after that young lady who walks in front of you, you're just like the officers who run after every petticoat they see. As I was thus following the train of my thoughts, I saw a carriage stop before a shop just as I was passing it. I recognized it at once. It was our director's carriage. He has nothing to do in the shop, I said to myself. It must be his daughter. I pressed myself close against the wall. A lackey opened the carriage door, and, as I had expected, she fluttered like a bird out of it. How proudly she looked right and left! How she drew her eyebrows together and shot lightnings from her eyes! Good heavens! I'm lost! Hopelessly lost! But why must she come out in such abominable weather? And yet they say women are so mad on their finery! She didn't recognize me. I had wrapped myself as closely as possible in my cloak. It was dirty and old-fashioned, and I would not have liked to have been seen by her wearing it. Now they wear cloaks with long collars, but mine has only a short double collar, and the 
cloth is of inferior quality. Her little dog could not get into the shop and remained outside. I know this dog. Its name is Maggie. Before I'd been standing there a minute, I heard a voice call. Good day, Maggie. Who the deuce was that? I looked around and saw two ladies hurrying by under an umbrella, one old, the other fairly young. They had already passed me when I heard the same voice say again, For shame, Maggie. What was that? I saw Maggie sniffing at a dog which ran behind the ladies. The deuce, I thought to myself. I'm not drunk. That happens pretty seldom. No, Fidel, you are wrong, I heard Maggie say quite distinctly. I was, ruff, ruff. I was, ruff, 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 very ill. What an extraordinary dog. I was, to tell the truth, quite amazed to hear it talk human language. But when I considered the matter well, I ceased to be astonished. In fact, such things have already happened in the world. It is said that in England the fish put its head out of water, and said a word or two in such an extraordinary language that learned men have been puzzling over them for three years, and have not succeeded in interpreting them yet. I also read in the paper of two cows who entered a shop and asked for a pound of tea. Meanwhile, what Maggie went on to say seemed to me still more remarkable. She added, I wrote to you lately, Fidel. Perhaps Polcan did not bring you the letter. Now, I'm willing to forfeit a whole month's salary if I ever heard of dogs writing before. This has certainly astonished me. For some little time past, I hear and see things which no other man has heard and seen. I will, I thought, follow that dog in order to get to the bottom of the matter. Accordingly, I opened my umbrella and went after the two ladies. They went down Bean Street, turned through Citizen Street and Carpenter Street, and finally halted on the Cuckoo Bridge before a large house. I know this house. It is Sverkov's. What a monster he is. What sort of people live there? How many cooks? How many bagmen? There are brother officials of mine also there, packed on each other like herrings, and I have a friend there, a fine player on the cornet. The ladies mounted to the fifth story. Very good, thought I. I will make a note of the number in order to follow up the matter at the first opportunity. October 4th. Today is Wednesday, and I was, as usual, in the office. I came early on purpose, sat down, and mended all the pens. Our director must be a very clever man. The whole room is full of bookcases. I read the titles of some of the books. They were very learned, beyond the comprehension of people of my class, and all in French and German. I look at his face, see how much dignity there is in his eyes. I never hear a single superfluous word from his mouth except that when he hands over the documents he asks, what sort of weather is it? No, he is not a man of our class. He is a real statesman. I have already noticed that I am a special favorite of his. If now his daughter also, ah, what folly, let me say no more about it. I have read the Northern Bee. 
What foolish people the French are. By heavens, I should like to tackle them all and give them a thrashing. I've also read a fine description of a ball given by a landowner of Kursk. The landowners of Kursk write a fine style. Then I noticed that it was already half past twelve, and the director had not yet left his bedroom. But about half past one something happened which no pen can describe. The door opened. I thought it was the director. I jumped up with my documents from the seat, and then she herself came into the room. Ye saints, how beautifully she was dressed. Her garments were whiter than a swan's plumage. Oh, how splendid! A sun, indeed, a real sun. She greeted me and asked, Has not my father come yet? Oh, what a voice! A canary bird! A real canary bird! Your Excellency, I wanted to exclaim, don't have me executed, but if it must be done, then kill me rather with your own angelic hand. But God knows why I could not bring it out, so I only said, no, he has not come yet. She glanced at me, looked at the books, and let her handkerchief fall. Instantly I started up, but slipped on the infernal polished floor and nearly broke my nose. Still, I succeeded in picking up the handkerchief. Ye heavenly choirs, what a handkerchief, so tender and soft, of the finest cambric. It had the scent of a general's rank. She thanked me and smiled so amiably that her sugar lips nearly melted. Then she left the room. After I'd sat there about an hour, a flunky came in and said, You can go home, Mr. Ivanovich. The director has already gone out. I cannot stand these lackeys. They hang about the vestibules and scarcely vouchsafe to greet one with a nod. Yes, sometimes it is even worse. Once one of these rascals offered me his snuff-box without even getting up from his chair. Don't you know, then, you country bumpkin, that I'm an official and of aristocratic birth? This time, however, I took my hat and overcoat quietly. These people naturally never think of helping one on with it. I went home, lay a good while on the bed, and wrote some verses in my note. Tis an hour since I saw thee, and it seems a whole long year. If I loathe my own existence, how can I live on, my dear? I think thereby Pushkin. In the evening I wrapped myself in my cloak, hastened to the director's house, and waited there a long time to see if she would come out and get into the carriage. I only wanted to see her once, but she did not come. November 6th. Our chief clerk has gone mad. When I came to the office today, he called me to his room and began as follows. Look here, my friend, what wild ideas have got into your head? How? What? None at all, I answered. Consider well. You are already past forty. It is quite time to be reasonable. What do you imagine? Do you think I don't know all your tricks? Are you trying to pay court to the director's daughter? Look at yourself and realize what you are, a non-entity, nothing else. I would not give a kopeck for you. Look well in the glass. How can you have such thoughts with such a caricature of a face? 
may the devil take him, because his own face has a certain resemblance to a medicine bottle, because he has a curly bush of hair on his head and sometimes combs it upwards and sometimes plasters it down in all kinds of queer ways. He thinks that he can do everything. I know well, I know why he's angry with me. He is envious. Perhaps he's noticed the tokens of favor which have been graciously shown me. But why should I bother about him? A counselor? What sort of important animal is that? He wears a gold chain with his watch, buys himself boots at thirty roubles a pair. May the deuce take him. Am I a tailor's son or some other obscure cabbage? I am a nobleman. I can also work my way up. I am just forty-two, an age when a man's real career generally begins. Wait a bit, my friend. I too may get to a superior's rank, or perhaps, if God is gracious, even to a higher one. I shall make a name which will far outstrip yours. You think there are no able men except yourself? I only need to order a fashionable coat and wear a tie like yours, and you would be quite eclipsed. But I have no money. That is the worst part of it. November 8th. I was at the theater. The Russian house fool was performed. I laughed heartily. There was also a kind of musical comedy which contained amusing hits at barristers. The language was very broad. I wonder the censor passed it. In the comedy, lines occur which accuse the merchants of cheating. Their sons are set to lead immoral lives and to behave very disrespectfully toward the nobility. The critics also are criticized. They are said only to be able to find faults so that authors have to beg the public for protection. Our modern dramatists certainly write amusing things. I am very fond of the theatre. If I have only a kopeck in my pocket, I always go there. Most of my fellow officials are uneducated boors, and they never enter a theatre unless one throws free tickets at their head. One actress sang divinely. I thought also of—but <laughs> silence. November 9th. About eight o'clock I went to the office. The chief clerk pretended not to notice my arrival. I, for my part, also behaved as though he were not in existence. I read through and collated documents. About four o'clock I left. I passed by the director's house, but no one was to be seen. After dinner I lay for a good while on the bed. November 11th. Today I sat in the director's room, mended twenty-three pence for him and for her, for her excellence, his daughter, four more. The director likes to see many pens lying on his table. What a head he must have! He continually wraps himself in silence, but I don't think the smallest trifle escapes his eye. I should like to know what he's generally thinking of, what is really going on in this brain. I should like to get acquainted with the whole manner of life of these gentlemen and get a closer view of their cunning courtier's arts and all the activities of these circles. I have often thought of asking His Excellence about them, but the deuce knows why. Every time my tongue failed me and I could get nothing out but my meteorological report. 
I wish I could get a look into the spare room whose door I so often see open. And a second small room behind the spare room excites my curiosity. How splendidly it's fitted up! What a quantity of mirrors and choice china it contains! I should also like to cast a glance into those regions where Her Excellency, the daughter, wields the scepter. I should like to see how all the scent bottles and boxes are arranged in her boudoir, and the flowers which exhale so delicious a scent that one is half afraid to breathe, and her clothes lying about which are too ethereal to be called clothes, but silence. Today there came to me what seemed to be a heavenly inspiration. I remembered the conversation between the two dogs which I had overheard on Nevsky Prospect. Very good, I thought. Now I see my way clear. I must get hold of the correspondence which these two silly dogs have carried on with each other. In it I shall probably find many things explained. I had already once called Maggie to me and said to her, Listen, Maggie, now we're alone together. If you like, I will also shut the door so that no one can see us. Tell me now all that you know about your mistress. I swear to you that I will tell no one. But the cunning dog drew in its tail, ruffled up its hair, and went quite quietly out of the door as though it had heard nothing. I'd long been of the opinion that dogs are much cleverer than men, I also believed that they could talk, and that only a certain obstinacy kept them from doing so. They are especially watchful animals, and nothing escapes their observation. Now, cost what it may, I will go tomorrow to Sverkov's house in order to ask after Fidel, and if I have luck to get hold of all the letters which Maggie has written to her. November 12th. Today, about two o'clock in the afternoon, I started in order by some means or other to see Fidel and question her. I cannot stand the smell of sauerkraut which assails one's olfactory nerves from all the shops in Citizen Street. There also exhales such an odor from under each house door that one must hold one's nose and pass by quickly. There ascends also so much smoke and soot from the artisan shops that it's almost impossible to get through it. When I'd climbed up to the sixth story and had rung the bell, a rather pretty girl with a freckled face came out. I recognized her as the companion of the old lady. She blushed a little and said, What do you want? I want to have a little conversation with your dog. She was a simple-minded girl, as I saw at once. The dog came running and barking loudly. I wanted to take hold of it, but the abominable beast nearly caught hold of my nose with its teeth. But in a corner of the room I saw its sleeping basket. Ah, that was what I wanted. I went to it, rummaged in the straw, and to my great satisfaction drew out a little packet of small pieces of paper. When the hideous little dog saw this, it first bit me in the calf of the leg, and then, as soon as it had become aware of my theft, it began to whimper and to fawn on me. But I said, no, you're a little beast. Goodbye, and hastened away. I believe the girl thought me mad. At any rate, she was thoroughly alarmed. When I reached my room, I wished to get to work at once and read through the letters by daylight. 
since I do not see well by candlelight. But the wretched Mara had got the idea of sweeping the floor. These blockheads of Finnish women are always clean where there's no need to be. I then went for a little walk and began to think over what had happened. Now at last I could get to the bottom of all the facts, ideas, and motives. These letters would explain everything. Dogs are clever fellows. They know all about politics, and I will certainly find in the letters all I want, especially the character of the director and all his relationships. And through these letters I will get information about her who... But silence... Towards evening I came home and lay for a good while on the bed. November 13th Now let us see. The letter is fairly legible, but the handwriting is somewhat doggish. Dear Fidel, I cannot get accustomed to your ordinary name as if they could not have found a better one for you. Fidel, how tasteless, how ordinary. But this is not the time to discuss it. I'm very glad that we thought of corresponding with each other. The letter is quite correctly written. The punctuation and spelling are perfectly right. Even our head clerk does not write so simply and clearly, though he declares he's been at the university. Let us go on. I think that it is one of the most refined joys of this world to interchange thoughts, feelings, and impressions. Hmm, this idea comes from some book which has been translated from German. I can't remember the title. I speak from experience, although I have not gone farther into the world than just before our front door. Does not my life pass happily and comfortably? My mistress, whom her father called Sophie, is quite in love with me. Ah, ah, but better be silent. Her father also often strokes me. I drink tea and coffee with cream. Yes, my dear, I must confess to you that I find no satisfaction in those large gnawed-at bones which Polcan devours in the kitchen. Only the bones of wild fowl are good, and that only when the marrow has not been sucked out of them. They taste very nice with a little sauce, but there should be no green stuff in it. But I know nothing worse than the habit of giving dogs balls of bread kneaded up. Someone sits at table, kneads a bread ball with dirty fingers, calls you, and sticks it in your mouth. Good manners forbid your refusing it, so you eat it. With disgust, it is true, but you eat it. The deuce, what is this? What rubbish? As if she could find nothing more suitable to write about. I'll see if there's anything more reasonable on the second page. I am quite willing to inform you of everything that goes on here. I have already mentioned the most important person in the house whom Sophie calls Papa. He's a very strange man. Ah, here we are at last. Yes, I knew it. They have a politician's penetrating eye for all things. Let us see what she says about Papa. A strange man. Generally he is silent. He only speaks seldom, but about a week ago he kept on repeating to himself, Shall I get it or not? In one hand he took a sheet of paper, the other he stretched out as though to receive something and repeated, Shall I get it or not? 
Once he turned to me with the question, What do you think, Maggie? I did not understand in the least what he meant, sniffed at his boots and went away. A week later he came home with his face beaming. That morning he was visited by several officers in uniform who congratulated him. At the dinner table he was in a better humor than I've ever seen him before. Ah, he's ambitious then. I must make a note of that. Pardon, my dear, I hasten to conclude, etc., etc. Tomorrow I will finish the letter. Now, good morning. Here I am again at your service. Today, my mistress, Sophie. Oh, we'll see what she says about Sophie. Let us go on. Was in an unusually excited state. She went to a ball, and I was glad that I could write to you in her absence. She likes going to balls, although she gets dreadfully irritated while dressing. I cannot understand, my dear, what is the pleasure in going to a ball. She comes home from the ball at six o'clock in the early morning, and to judge by her pale and emaciated face, she's had nothing to eat. I could, frankly speaking, not endure such an existence. If I could not get partridge with sauce or the wing of a roast chicken, I don't know what I should do. Porridge with sauce is also tolerable, but I can get up no enthusiasm for carrots, turnips, and artichokes. The style is very unequal. One sees at once that it has not been written by a man. The beginning is quite intelligent, but at the end the canine nature breaks out. I will read another letter. It's rather long, and there's no date. Ah, my dear, how delightful is the arrival of spring. My heart beats as though it expected something. There is a perpetual ringing in my ears, so that I often stand with my foot raised for several minutes at a time, and listen towards the door. In confidence, I'll tell you that I have many admirers. I often sit on the window-sill and let them pass in review. Ah, oh, if you knew what miscreations there are among them. One, a clumsy house-dog with stupidity written on his face, walks on the street with an important air and imagines that he's an extremely important person and that the eyes of all the world are fastened on him. I don't pay him the least attention and pretend not to see him at all. And what a hideous bulldog has taken up his post opposite my window. If he stood on his hind legs, as the monster probably cannot, he would be taller by a head than my mistress's papa, who himself has a stately figure. This lout seems, moreover, to be very impudent. I growl at him, but he does not seem to mind that at all. If he at least would only wrinkle his forehead. Instead of that, he stretches out his tongue, droops his big ears, and stares in at the window. This rustic boor! But do you think, my dear, that my heart remains proof against all temptations? Alas, no. If you had only seen that gentlemanly dog who crept through the fence of the neighboring house! Treasure is his name. Oh, my dear, what a delightful snout he has! To the deuce with this stuff! What rubbish it is! How can one blacken paper with such absurdities? Give me a man! I want to see a man! I need some food to nourish and refresh my mind, and get the silliness instead. I will turn the page to see if there's anything better on the other side. Sophie sat at the table and sewed something. 
I looked out of the window and amused myself by watching the passers-by. Suddenly a flunky entered and announced a visitor, Mr. Teploff. "'Show him in,' said Sophie, and began to embrace me. "'Ah, oh, Maggie, Maggie, do you know who that is? He's dark and belongs to the royal household, and what eyes he has, dark and brilliant as fire.' Sophie hastened into her room. A minute later, a young gentleman with black whiskers entered. He went to the mirror, smoothed his hair, and looked around the room. I turned away and sat down in my place. Sophie entered and returned his bow in a friendly manner. I pretended to observe nothing and continued to look out of the window, but I leant my head a little on one side to hear what they were talking about. Oh, my dear, what silly things they discussed. How a lady executed the wrong figure in dancing. How a certain Boboff, with his expensive shirt frill, had looked like a stork and nearly fallen down. How a certain Ladina imagined she had blue eyes when they were really green, etc. I do not know, my dear, what special charm she finds in her Mr. Teploff and why she is so delighted with him. It seems to me, myself, that there is something wrong here. It is impossible that this Teploff should bewitch her. We will see further. If this gentleman of the household pleases her, then she must also be pleased, according to my view, with that official who sits in her papa's waiting-room. Oh, my dear, if you knew what a figure he is, a regular tortoise. What official does she mean? He has an extraordinary name. He always sits there and mends the pens. His hair looks like a truss of hay. Her papa always employs him instead of a servant. I believe this abominable little beast is referring to me. But what has my hair got to do with hay? Sophie can never keep from laughing when she sees him. You lie, cursed dog! What a scandalous tongue, as if I did not know that it's envy which prompts you, and that there is treachery at work, yes, the treachery of the chief clerk. This man hates me implacably. He has plotted against me. He is always seeking to injure me. I'll look through one more letter. Perhaps it will make the matter clearer. Fidel, my dear, pardon me that I have not written for so long. I was floating in a dream of delight. In truth, some author remarks, love is a second life. Besides, great changes are going on in the house. The young Chamberlain is always here. Sophie is wildly in love with him. Her papa is quite contented. I heard from Gregor, who sweeps the floor, and is in the habit of talking to himself, that the marriage will soon be celebrated. Her papa will, at any rate, get his daughter married to a general, a colonel, or a chamberlain. Deuce take it! I can read no more. It is all about chamberlains and generals. I should like myself to be a general. Not in order to sue for her hand and all that. No, no, not, not at all. I should like to be a general merely in order to see people wriggling, squirming, and hatching plots before me. And then I should like to tell them that they're both of them not worth spitting on. But it is vexatious. I tear the foolish dog's letters up in a thousand pieces. December 3rd It is not 
possible that the marriage should take place. It is only idle gossip. What does it signify if he's a chamberlain? That is only a dignity, not a substantial thing which one can see or handle. His chamberlain's office will not procure him a third eye in his forehead. Neither is his nose made of gold. It's just like mine or anyone else's nose. He does not eat and cough, but smells and sneezes with it. I should like to get to the bottom of the mystery. Whence do all these distinctions come? Why am I only a titular counsellor? Perhaps I am really a count or a general, and only appear to be a titular counsellor. Perhaps I don't even know who and what I am. How many cases there are in history of a simple gentleman, or even a burgher or peasant, suddenly turning out to be a great lord or baron? Well, suppose that I appear suddenly in a general's uniform, on the right shoulder an epaulette, on the left an epaulette, and a blue sash across my breast. What sort of a tune would my beloved sing then? What would her papa, our director, say? Oh, he is ambitious. He is a Freemason, certainly a Freemason. However much he may conceal it, I have found it out. When he gives anyone his hand, he only reaches out two fingers. Well, could I not this minute be nominated a general or superintendent? I should like to know why I am a titular counsellor. Why just that and nothing more? December 5th Today I have been reading papers the whole morning. Very strange things are happening in Spain. I have not understood them all. It is said that the throne is vacant. The representatives of the people are in difficulties about finding an occupant and riots are taking place. All this appears to me very strange. How can the throne be vacant? It is said that it will be occupied by a woman. A woman cannot sit on a throne. That is impossible. Only a king can sit on a throne. They say that there is no king there, but that is not possible. There cannot be a kingdom without a king. There must be a king, but he's hidden away somewhere. Perhaps he's actually on the spot, and only some domestic complications or fears of the neighboring powers, France and other countries, compel him to remain in concealment. There might also be other reasons. December 8th. I was nearly going to the office, but various considerations kept me from doing so. I keep on thinking about these Spanish affairs. How is it possible that a woman should reign? It would not be allowed, especially by England. In the rest of Europe, the political situation is also critical. The Emperor of Austria. These events, to tell the truth, have so shaken and shattered me that I could really do nothing all day. Mara told me that I was very absent-minded at table. In fact, in my absent-mindedness, I threw two plates on the ground so that they broke in pieces. After dinner, I felt weak and did not feel up to making abstracts of reports. I lay most of the time on my bed and thought of the Spanish affairs. The year 2000, April 43rd. Today is a day of splendid triumph. Spain has a king. He has been found. And I am he. I discovered it today. All of a sudden it came upon me like a flash of lightning. 
I don't understand how I could imagine that I'm a titular counselor. How could such a foolish idea enter my head? It was fortunate that it occurred to no one to shut me up in an asylum. Now it is all clear, and as plain as a pikestaff. Formerly, I don't know why, everything seemed veiled in a kind of mist. That is, I believe, because people think that the human brain is in the head. Nothing of the sort. It is carried by the wind from the Caspian Sea. For the first time I told Mara who I am. When she learned that the King of Spain stood before her, she struck her hands together over her head and nearly died of alarm. The stupid thing had never seen the King of Spain before. I comforted her, however, at once by assuring her that I was not angry with her for having hitherto cleaned my boots badly. Women are stupid things. One cannot interest them in lofty subjects. She was frightened because she thought all kings of Spain were like Philip II. But I explained to her that there was a great difference between me and him. I did not go to the office. Why the deuce should I? No, my dear friends, you won't get me there again. I'm not going to worry myself with your infernal documents any more. Marchember 86. Between day and night. Today the office messenger came and summoned me, as I had not been there for three weeks. I went just for the fun of the thing. The chief clerk thought I would bow humbly before him and make excuses. But I looked at him quite indifferently, neither angrily nor mildly, and sat down quietly at my place as though I noticed no one. I looked at all this rabble of scribblers and thought, if you only knew who is sitting among you, good heavens, what a to-do you would make. Even the chief clerk would bow himself to the earth before me, as he does now before the director. A pile of reports was laid before me, of which to make abstracts, but I didn't touch them with one finger. After a little time there was a commotion in the office, and there a report went round that the director was coming. Many of the clerks vied with each other to attract his notice, but I did not stir. As he came through our room, each one hastily buttoned up his coat, but I had no idea of doing anything of the sort. What is the director to me? Should I stand up before him? Never. What sort of a director is he? He's a bottle-stopper and no director, a quite ordinary simple bottle-stopper, nothing more. I felt quite amused as they gave me a document to sign. They thought I would simply put down my name so-and-so clerk. Why not? But at the top of the sheet, where the director generally writes his name, I inscribed Ferdinand the Eighth in bold characters. You should have seen what a reverential silence ensued. But I made a gesture with my hand and said, Gentlemen, no ceremony, please. Then I went out and took my way straight to the director's house. He was not at home. The flunky wanted not to let me in, but I talked to him in such a way that he soon dropped his arms. I went straight to Sophie's dressing room. She sat before the mirror. When she saw me, she sprang up and took a step backwards, but I did not tell her that I was the King of Spain. But I did tell her that a happiness awaited her, beyond her power to imagine.' 
and that in spite of all our enemies' devices we should be united. That was all which I wished to say to her, and I went out. Oh, what cunning creatures these women are! Now I found out what woman really is. Hitherto no one knew whom a woman really loves. I am the first to discover it. She loves the devil. Yes, joking apart, learned men write nonsense when they pronounce that she is this and that. She loves the devil, that is all. You see a woman looking through her lorgnette from a box in the front row. One thinks she is watching that stout gentleman who wears an order. Not a bit of it. She's watching the devil who stands behind his back. He's hidden himself there and beckons to her with his finger and she marries him. Actually, she marries him. That is all ambition, and the reason is that there is under the tongue a little blister in which there is a little worm the size of a pin's head, and this is constructed by a barber in Bean Street. I don't remember his name at the moment, but so much is certain that, in conjunction with a midwife, he wants to spread Mohammedanism all over the world, and that in consequence of this a large number of people in France have already adopted the faith of Islam. No date. The day had no date. I went for a walk incognito on the Nevsky Prospect. I avoided every appearance of being the King of Spain. I felt it below my dignity to let myself be recognized by the whole world, since I must first present myself at court. And I was also restrained by the fact that I have at present no Spanish national costume. If I could only get a cloak. I tried to have a consultation with the tailor, but these people are real asses. Moreover, they neglect their business, dabble in speculation, and have become loafers. I'll have a cloak made out of my new official uniform, which I've only worn twice. But to prevent this botcher of a tailor spoiling it, I will make it myself with closed doors so that no one sees me. Since the cut must be altogether altered, I have used the scissors myself. I don't remember the date, and the devil knows what month it was. The cloak is quite ready. Mara exclaimed aloud when I put it on. I will, however, not present myself at court yet. The Spanish deputation has not yet arrived. It would not be befitting if I appeared without them. My appearance would be less imposing. From hour to hour, I expect them. The first. The extraordinary long delay of the deputies in coming astonishes me. What can possibly keep them? Perhaps France has a hand in the matter. It is certainly hostilely inclined. I went to the post office to inquire whether the Spanish deputation had come. The postmaster is an extraordinary blockhead who knows nothing. No, he said to me, there is no Spanish deputation here, but if you want to send them a letter, we will forward it at the fixed rate. The deuce! What do I want with a letter? Letters are nonsense. Letters are written by apothecaries. Madrid, February 30th. So, I am in Spain after all. It has happened so quickly that I could hardly take it in. The Spanish deputies came early this morning, and I got with them into the carriage. This unexpected promptness seemed to me strange. 
We drove so quickly that in half an hour we were at the Spanish frontier. Over all Europe now there are cast-iron roads, and the steamers go very fast. A wonderful country, the Spain. As we entered the first room, I saw numerous persons with shorn heads. I guessed at once that they must be either grandees or soldiers, at least to judge by their shorn heads. The Chancellor of the State, who led me by the hand, seemed to me to behave in a very strange way. He pushed me into a little room and said, Stay here, and if you call yourself King Ferdinand again, I will drive the wish to do so out of you. I knew, however, that that was only a test, and I reasserted my conviction, on which the Chancellor gave me two such severe blows with a stick on the back that I could have cried out with the pain, but I restrained myself remembering that this was a usual ceremony of old-time chivalry, when one was inducted into a high position, and in Spain the laws of chivalry prevail up to the present day. When I was alone, I determined to study state affairs. I discovered that Spain and China are one and the same country, and it is only through ignorance that people regard them as separate kingdoms. I advise everyone urgently to write down the word Spain on a sheet of paper. He will see that it is quite the same as China. But I feel much annoyed by an event which is about to take place tomorrow, for at seven o'clock the earth is going to sit on the moon. This is foretold by the famous English chemist Wellington. To tell the truth, I often felt uneasy when I thought of the excessive brittleness and fragility of the moon. The moon is generally repaired in Hamburg, and very imperfectly. It's done by a lame cooper, an obvious blockhead who has no idea how to do it. He took wax thread and olive oil, hence that pungent smell over all the earth which compels people to hold their noses. And this makes the moon so fragile that no man can live on it but only noses. Therefore we cannot see our noses because they're on the moon. When I now pictured to myself how the earth, that massive body, would crush our noses to dust if it sat on the moon, I became so uneasy that I immediately put on my shoes and stockings and hastened into the council hall to give the police orders to prevent the earth sitting on the moon. The grandees with the shorn heads, whom I met in great numbers in the hall, were very intelligent people, and when I exclaimed, Gentlemen, let us save the moon, for the earth is going to sit on it, they all set to work to fulfill my imperial wish, and many of them clambered up the wall in order to take the moon down. At that moment the imperial chancellor came in. As soon as he appeared they all scattered, but I alone, as king, remained. To my astonishment, however, the Chancellor beat me with the stick and drove me to my room. So powerful are ancient customs in Spain. January in the same year, following after February. I could never understand what kind of country this Spain really is. The popular customs and rules of court etiquette are quite extraordinary. I do not understand them at all. Today my head was shorn, although I exclaimed as loudly as I could that I did not want to be a monk. What happened afterwards, when they began to let cold water trickle on my head, I do not know. I have never experienced such hellish torments. I nearly went mad, and they had difficulty in holding me. 
The significance of this strange custom is entirely hidden from me. It's a very foolish and unreasonable one. Nor can I understand the stupidity of the kings who have not done away with it before now. Judging by all the circumstances, it seems to me as though I'd fallen into the hands of the Inquisition, and as though the man whom I took to be the Chancellor was the Grand Inquisitor. But yet I cannot understand how the king could fall into the hands of the Inquisition. The affair may have been arranged by France, especially Polignac. He's a hound, that Polignac. He's sworn to compass my death, and now he's hunting me down. But I know, my friend, that you're only a tool of the English. They are clever fellows and have a finger in every pie. All the world knows that France sneezes when England takes a pinch of snuff. The 25th. Today the Grand Inquisitor came into my room. When I heard his steps in the distance, I hid myself under a chair. When he did not see me, he began to call. At first he called, Pope Christian. I made no answer. Then he called, Akanti Ivanovich, titular councillor, nobleman. I still kept silence. Ferdinand VIII, King of Spain. I was on the point of putting out my head, but I thought, no, brother, you shall not deceive me. You shall not pour water on my head again. But he'd already seen me and drove me from under the chair with his stick. The cursed stick really hurts one. But the following discovery compensated me for all the pain, i.e. that every cock has his spain under his feathers. The Grand Inquisitor went angrily away and threatened me with some punishment or other. I felt only contempt for his powerless spite, for I know that he only works like a machine, like a tool of the English. 34 March, February 349. No, I have no longer power to endure. Oh God, what are they going to do with me? They pour cold water on my head. They take no notice of me and seem neither to see nor hear. Why do they torture me? What do they want from one so wretched as myself? What can I give them? I possess nothing. I cannot bear all their tortures. My head aches as though everything were turning round in a circle. Save me. Carry me away. Give me three steeds swift as the wind. Mount your seat, coachman. Ring bells, gallop horses, and carry me straight out of this world. Farther, ever farther, till nothing more is to be seen. Oh, heaven bends over me already. A star glimmers in the distance. The forest with its dark trees in the moonlight rushes past. A bluish mist floats under my feet. Music sounds in the cloud. On the one side is the sea. On the other, Italy. Beyond I also see Russian peasants' houses. Is not my parents' house there in the distance? Does not my mother sit by the window? Oh, mother, mother, save your unhappy son. 
Let a tear fall on his aching head. See how they torture him. Press the poor orphan to your bosom. He has no rest in this world. They hunt him from place to place. Mother, mother, have pity on your sick child. And do you know that the Bay of Algiers has a wart under his nose? At one of the Inspector General by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Translated by Thomas Seltzer Act 1 A room in the governor's house Scene 1 Anton Antonovich, the governor Artime Filipovich, the superintendent of charities Luka Lukic, the inspector of schools Amos Fyodorovich, the judge Stepan Ilyich Christian Ivanovich the doctor, and two police sergeants. I have called you together, gentlemen, to tell you an unpleasant piece of news. An inspector general is coming. What? what? An, inspector, an general? inspector general? Yes, an inspector from St. Petersburg, incognito, and with secret instructions, too. Ah, pretty, how do you do? As if we hadn't enough trouble without an inspector. Good Lord, with secret instructions? I had a sort of presentiment of it. Last night I kept dreaming of two rats, regular monsters. Upon my word, I never saw the likes of them, black and supernaturally big. They came in, sniffed, and then went away. Here's a letter I'll read to you, from Andrei Ivanovich. You know him, Artemy Filopovich. Listen to what he writes. My dear friend, godfather, and benefactor. He mumbles, glancing rapidly down the page. And to let you know, ah, that's it. I hasten to let you know, among other things, that an official has arrived here with instructions to inspect the whole government, and your district especially. Raises his finger significantly. I have learned of his being here from highly trustworthy sources, though he pretends to be a private person. So, as you have your little picadellos, you know, like everybody else, you are a sensible man and you don't let the good things that come your way slip by. Stopping. Hmm, that's his junk. Ah, ah. I advise you to take precautions as he may arrive any hour, if he hasn't already, and is not staying somewhere incognito. Yesterday, uh, the rest are family matters. Sister Anna Kronova is here visiting us with her husband. Ivan Kronovich has grown very fat and is always playing the fiddle, etc., etc. So, there you have the situation we are confronted with, gentlemen. An extraordinary situation, most extraordinary. Something behind it, I am sure. But why, Anton Antonovich? What for? Why should we have an inspector? It's fate, I suppose. Sighs. Oh, till now, thank goodness, they have been nosing about in other towns. Now our turn has come. My opinion is, Anton Antonovich, that the cause is a deep one and rather political in character. It means this, 
that Russia, yes, that Russia, intends to go to war, and the government has secretly commissioned an official to find out if there is any treasonable activity anywhere. The wise man has hit on the very thing. Treason in this little country town. As if it were on the frontier. Why, you might gallop three years away from here and reach nowhere. No, you don't catch on. You, you don't... The government is shrewd. It makes no difference that our town is so remote. The government is on the lookout all the same. Governor, cutting him short. On the lookout or not on the lookout? Anyhow, gentlemen, I have given you warning. I have made some arrangements for myself, and I advise you to do the same. You especially, Artemy Filopovich. This official, no doubt, will want first of all to inspect your department. So you had better see to it that everything is in order, that the nightcaps are clean, and the patients don't go about as they usually do, looking as grimy as blacksmiths. Oh, that's a small matter. We can get nightcaps easily enough. And over each bed, you might hang up a placard stating in Latin or some other language, that's your end of it, Christian Ivanovich, the name of the disease, when the patient fell ill, the day of the week and the month. And I don't like your invalids to be smoking such strong tobacco. It makes you sneeze when you come in. It would be better, too, if there weren't so many of them. If there are a large number, it will instantly be ascribed to bad supervision or incompetent medical treatment. Oh, as to treatment, Kristin Ivanovich and I have worked out our own system. Our rule is, the nearer to nature the better. We use no expensive medicines. A man is a simple affair. If he dies, he'd die anyway. If he gets well, he'd get well anyway. Besides, the doctor would have a hard time making the patients understand him. He doesn't know a word of Russian. The doctor gives forth a sound intermediate between M and A. And you, Amos Fedorovich, had better look to the courthouse. The attendants have turned the entrance hall where the petitioners usually wait into a poultry yard, and the geese and goswings go poking their beaks between people's legs. Of course, setting up housekeeping is commendable, and there is no reason why a porter shouldn't do it. Only, you see, the courthouse is not exactly the place for it. I had meant to tell you so before, but somehow it escaped my memory. Well, I'll have them all taken into the kitchen today. Will you come and dine with me? Then, too, it isn't right to have the courthouse littered up with all sorts of rubbish. To have a hunting crop lying among the papers on your desk? You're fond of sport, I know. Still, it's better to have the crop removed for the present. When the inspector is gone, you may put it back again. As for your assessor, he's an educated man, to be sure. But he reeks of spirits, as if he had just emerged from a distillery. That's not right, either. I had meant to tell you so long ago, but something or other drove the thing out of my mind. If his odor is really a congenital defect, as he says, then there are ways of remedying it. 
you might advise him to eat onion or garlic or something of the sort. Krishtian Ivanovich can help him out with some of his nostrums. The doctor makes the same sound as before. No, there's no cure for it. He says his nurse struck him when he was a child, and ever since he has smelt of vodka. Well, I just wanted to call your attention to it. As regards the internal administration, and what Andrei Ivanovich in his letter calls little picadellos, I have nothing to say. Why, of course, there isn't a man living who hasn't some sins to answer for. That's the way God made the world. And the Voltairian freethinkers can talk against it all they like. It won't do any good. What do you mean by sins? Anton Antonovich, there are sins and sins. I tell everyone plainly that I take bribes. I make no bones about it. But what kinds of bribes? White greyhound puppies? That's quite a different matter. Hmm, bribes are bribes, whether puppies or anything else. Oh no, Anton Antonovich, but if one has a fur overcoat worth 500 rubles and one's wife a shawl... Governor, testily. And supposing greyhound puppies are the only bribes you take? You're an atheist. You never go to church, while I am at least a firm believer and go to church every Sunday. You... Oh, I know you. When you begin to talk about the creation, it makes my flesh creep. Well, it's a conclusion I've reasoned out with my own brain. Too much brain is sometimes worse than none at all. However, I merely mentioned the courthouse. I dare say nobody will ever look at it. It's an enviable place. God Almighty himself seems to watch over it. But you, Luka Lukich, as inspector of schools, ought to have an eye on the teachers. They are very learned gentlemen, no doubt with a college education. But they have funny habits, inseparable from the profession I know. One of them, for instance, the man with the fat face, I forget his name, is sure the moment he takes his chair to screw up his face like this. Imitates him. And then he has a trick of sticking his hand under his necktie and smoothing down his beard. It doesn't matter, of course, if he makes a face at the pupils. Perhaps it's even necessary. I'm no judge of that. But you yourself will admit that if he does it to a visitor, it may turn out very badly. The inspector, or anyone else, might take it as meant for himself. And then the deuce knows what might come of it. But what can I do? I have told him about it time and again. Only the other day, when the marshal of the nobility came into the classroom, he made such a face at him as I had never in my life seen before. I dare say it was with the best intentions, but I get reprimanded for permitting radical ideas to be instilled in the minds of the young. And then I must call your attention to the history teacher. He has a lot of learning in his head, and a store of facts, that's evident. But he lectures with such ardor that he quite forgets himself. Once I listened to him. As long as he was talking about the Assyrians and the Babylonians, it was not so bad. But when he reached Alexander of Macedon, I can't describe what came over him. Upon my word, I thought a fire had broken out. He jumped down from the platform, picked up a chair, and dashed it to the floor. 
Alexandra of Macedon was a hero, it is true. But that's no reason for breaking chairs. The state must bear the cost. Yes, he is a hot one. I have spoken to him about it several times. He only says, As you please, but in the cause of learning, I will even sacrifice my life. Yes, it's a mysterious law of fate. Your clever man is either a drunkard, or he makes such grimaces that you feel like running away. Ah, uh, heaven save us from being in the educational department. One's afraid of everything. Everybody meddles and wants to show that he is as clever as you. Ah, oh, that's nothing. But this cursed incognito. All of a sudden, he'll look in. Ah, so you're here, my dear fellows. And who's the judge here? says he. Lyapkin Dyapkin. Bring Lyapkin Dyapkin here. And who is the superintendent of charities? Zemlininka. Bring Zemlinika here. That's what's bad. Scene two. Enter Ivan Kuzmich, the postmaster. Tell me, gentlemen, who's coming? What's the novnik? What? Haven't you heard? Babshinsky told me he was at the post office just now. Well, what do you think of it? What do I think of it? Why, there'll be a war with the Turks. Exactly. Just what I thought. Governor, sarcastically. Yes, you've both hit in the air precisely. It's war with the Turks for sure, all fomented by the French. Nonsense. War with the Turks indeed. It's we who are going to get it, not the Turks. You may count on that. Here's a letter to prove it. In that case, then we won't go to war with Turks. Well, how do you feel about it, Ivan Kuznich? How do I feel? How do you feel about it, Anton Antonovich? I? Well, I'm not afraid. But I feel a little, you know, the merchants and townspeople bother me. I seem to be unpopular with them. But the Lord knows, if I've taken from some, I've done it without a trace of ill feeling. I even suspect... Takes him by the arm and walks aside with him. I even suspect that I may have been denounced. Or why would they send an inspector to us? Look here, Ivan Kuznich. Don't you think you could... <coughs> ahem... Just open a little every letter that passes through your office and read it, for the common benefit of us all, you know, to see if it contains any kind of information against me, or is only ordinary correspondence. If it is all right, you can seal it up again, or simply deliver the letter opened. Oh, I know, you needn't teach me that. I do it not so much as a precaution as out of curiosity, I just itch to know what's doing in the world. It is very interesting reading. I tell you, some letters are fascinating. Parts of them written grand, more edifying than the Moscow Gazette. Tell me, then, have you read anything about any official from St. Petersburg? No, nothing about a St. Petersburg official, 
But plenty but Kostroma and Saratov once. A pity you don't read the letters. There are some very fine passages in them. For instance, not long ago, a lieutenant writes to a friend describing a ball very wittily. Oh, splendid! Dear friend, he says, I live in the regions of the Empyrean. Lots of girls, bands playing, flags flying. He's put a lot of feeling into his description, a whole lot. I've kept the letter on purpose. Would you like to read it? No, this is no time for such things. But please, Ivan Kuzmich, do me the favor. If ever you chance upon a complaint or denunciation, don't hesitate a moment, hold it back. I will, with the greatest pleasure. You had better be careful. You may get yourself into trouble. Goodness me. Never mind, never mind. Of course, it would be different if you published it broadcast. But it's a private affair, just between us. Yes, it's a bad business. I really just came here to make you a present of a puppy, a sister to the dog you know about. I suppose you have heard that Chiptovich and Varkovinsky have started to suit. So now I live in Clover. I hunt hares first on one's estate, then on the others. I don't care about your hares now, my good friend. That cursed incognito is on my brain. Any moment, the door may open, and in walk... Scene 3 Enter Bobchinsky and Dobchinsky, out of breath. What an extraordinary occurrence! An unexpected piece of news! What, what is, is it? it? What, what is, is it? it? Something quite unforeseen. We were about to enter the inn. Bobchinsky, interrupting. Yes, Pyotr Ivanovich and I were entering the inn. Dobchinsky, interrupting. Please, Pyotr Ivanovich, let me tell. No, please, let me, let me. You can't, you haven't got the style for it. Oh, but you'll get mixed up and won't remember everything. Yes, I will, upon my word, I will. Please, don't interrupt. Do let me tell the news, don't interrupt. Pray oblige me, gentlemen, and tell Dobchinsky not to interrupt. Speak for heaven's sake, what is it? My heart is in my mouth. Sit down, gentlemen, take seats. Pyotr Ivanovich, there's a chair for you. All seat themselves around Bobchinsky and Dobchinsky. Well, now, what is it? What is it? Permit me. Permit me. I'll tell it all just as it happened. As soon as I had the pleasure of taking leave of you, after you were good enough to be bothered with the letter which you had received, sir, I ran out. Now, please... Don't keep interrupting, Dobchinsky. I know all about it, all, I tell you. So, I ran out to see Gorobkin. But, not finding Gorobkin at home, I went off to Rastakovsky, and not seeing him, I went to Ivan Kuzmich to tell him of the news you'd got. Going on from there, I met Dobchinsky. Dobchinsky, interjecting. At this stall, where they sell pies. At the store where they sell pies. Well, I met Dobchinsky and I said to him, Have you heard the news that came to Anton Antonovich in a letter which is absolutely reliable? But Pyotr Ivanovich had already heard of it from your housekeeper, Avdotya, 
who, I don't know why, had been sent to Filip Antonovich Pachechuyov. Dobchinsky, interrupting. To get a little cake for French brandy. Yes, to get a little cake for French brandy. So then I went with Dobchinsky to Pachechuyov's. Will you stop, Piotr Ivanovich? Please don't interrupt. So, off we went to Pachechuyov's, and on the way, Dobchinsky said, Let's go to the inn, he said. I haven't eaten a thing since morning. My stomach is growling. Yes, sir, his stomach was growling. They've just got in a supply of fresh salmon at the inn, he said. Let's take a bite. We had hardly entered the inn when we saw a young man. Dobchinsky, interrupting. Of rather good appearance and dressed in ordinary citizen's clothes. Yes, of rather good appearance and dressed in citizen's clothes. Walking up and down the room, there was something out of the usual about his face. You know, something deep and a manner about him. And here... Raises his hand to his forehead and turns it around several times. Full, full of everything. I had a sort of feeling, and I said to Dobchinsky, Something's up. This is no ordinary matter. Yes, and Dobchinsky beckoned to the landlord, Vlas, the innkeeper, you know. Three weeks ago his wife presented him with a baby. A bouncer. He'll grow up just like his father and keep a tavern. Well, we beckoned to Vlas, and Dobchinsky asked him on the quiet. Who, he asked, is that young man? That young man, Vlas replied, that young man. Oh, don't interrupt, Pyotr Ivanovich, please don't interrupt. You can't tell the story. Upon my word, you can't. You lisp and one tooth in your mouth makes you whistle. I know what I'm saying. That young man, he said, is an official. Yes, sir. On his way from St. Petersburg. And his name, he said, is Ivan Alexandrovich. Klestakov, and he's going, he said, to the government of Saratov, he said, and he acts so queerly. It's the second week he's been here, and he's never left the house, and he won't pay a penny, takes everything on account. When Vlas told me that, a light dawned on me from above, and I said to Pyotr Ivanovich, hey! No, Pyotr Ivanovich, I said hey! Well, first you said it, then I did. Hey, said both of us. And why does he stick here if he's going to Saratov? Yes, sir, that's he, the official. Who? What official? Why, the official who you were notified was coming. The inspector. Governor, terrified. Great God! What's that you're saying? It can't be he. It is, though... Why, he doesn't pay his bills, and he doesn't leave. Who else can it be? And his postchaise is ordered for Saratov. It's he, it's he. It's he. Why, he's so alert, he scrutinized everything. He saw that Dobchinsky and I were eating salmon, chiefly on account of Dobchinsky's stomach, and he looked at our plate so hard that I was frightened to death. The Lord have mercy on us sinners. In what room is he staying? Room number five, near the stairway. In the same room that the officers quarreled in when they passed through here last year. How long has he been here? Two weeks. 
He came on St. Vasily's day. Two weeks? Aside. Holy fathers and saints, preserve me. In those two weeks I have flogged the wife of a non-commissioned officer. The prisoners were not given their rations. The streets are dirty as a pothouse. A scandal, a disgrace. Clutches his head with both hands. What do you think, Anton Antonovich? Hadn't we better go and stay to the inn? No, no. First, send the chief magistrate, then the clergy, then the merchants. That's what it says in the book, the Acts of John the Freemason. No, no, leave it to me. I have been in difficult situations before now. They have passed off all right, and I was even rewarded with thanks. Maybe the Lord will help us out this time, too. Turns to Bobchinsky. You say he's a young man? Yes, about twenty-three or four at the most. So much the better. It's easier to pump things out of a young man. It's tough if you've got a hardened old devil to deal with. But a young man is all on the surface. You, gentlemen, had better see to your end of things while I go unofficially, by myself or with Dobchinsky here, as though for a walk, to see that the visitors that come to town are properly accommodated. Here, Svistunov. To one of the sergeants. Sir. Go instantly to the police captain. Oh, no, I'll want you. Tell somebody to send him here as quickly as possible, and then come back. Svistunov hurries off. Let's go, let's go, Amos Fedorovich. We may really get into trouble. What have you got to be afraid of? Put clean nightcaps on the patients and the thing's done. Nightcaps, nonsense. The patients were ordered to have oatmeal soup. Instead of that, there's such a smell of cabbage in all the corridors that you've got to hold your nose. Well, my mind's at ease. Who's going to visit the court? Supposing he does look at the papers, he'll wish he had left them alone. I have been on the bench 15 years, and when I take a look into a report, I despair. King Solomon, in all his wisdom, could not tell you what is true and what is not true in it. The judge, the superintendent of charities, the school inspector, and the postmaster go out and bump up against the sergeant in the doorway as the latter returns. Scene 4. The Governor, Bobchinsky, Dobchinsky, and Sergeant Svistunov. Well, is the cab ready? Yes, sir. Go out on the street. Oh, oh, no, stop. Go and bring... Why, where are the others? Why are you alone? Didn't I give orders for Prokhorov to be here? Where is Prokhorov? Prokhorov is in somebody's house and can't go on duty just now. Why so? Well, they brought him back this morning, dead drunk. They poured two buckets of water over him, but he hasn't sobered up yet. Governor, clutching his head with both hands... For heaven's sakes, go out on duty quick, or no, run up to my room, do you hear? And fetch my sword and my new hat. Now, Pyotr Orvonovich? To Dobshinsky. Come. And me? Me, too. Let me come too, Anton Antonovich. No, no, Bobchinsky, it won't do. Besides, there is not enough room in the cab. Oh, that doesn't matter. I'll follow the cab on foot. On foot. I just want to peep through a crack, so, to see that manner of his, how he acts. Governor, turning to the sergeant and taking his sword. 
Be off and get the policemen together. Let them each take a... Well, there, see how scratched my sword is. It's that dog of a merchant, Abdulin. He sees the governor's sword is old and doesn't provide a new one. Oh, the sharpness. I bet they got their petitions against me ready in their coattail pockets. Let each take a street in his hand. I don't mean a street, a broom. And sweep the street leading to the inn and sweep it clean. And, do you hear? And see here, I know you, I know your tricks. You insinuate yourself into the inn and walk off with super spoons in your boots. Just you look out. I keep my ears pricked. What have you been up to with the merchant Yonavim, eh? He gave you two yards of cloth for your uniform, and you stole the whole piece. Take care. You're only a sergeant. Don't graft higher than your rank. Off with you. Scene 5. Enter the police captain. Hello, Stepan Ilich. Where the dickens have you been keeping yourself? What do you mean by acting that way? Why, I was just outside the gate. Well, listen, Stepan Ilich. An official has come from St. Petersburg. What have you done about it? What you told me to. I sent Sergeant Puguvichin with policemen to clean the street. Where is Dishimorda? He has gone off on the fire engine. And Bokorov is drunk? Yes. How could you allow him to get drunk? God knows. Yesterday there was a fight outside the town. He went to restore order and was brought back drunk. Well, then, this is what you are to do. Sergeant Pugovitsin, he is tall, so he is to stand on duty on the bridge for appearance sake. Then the old fence near the bootmakers must be pulled down at once and a post stuck up with a wisp of straw so as to look like raining. The more debris there is, the more it will show the governor's activity. Good God, though, I forgot that about forty cartloads of rubbish have been dumped against that fence. What a vile, filthy town this is. A monument, or even only a fence, is erected, and instantly they bring a lot of dirt together from the devil knows where and dump it there. Heaves a sigh. <sighs> and if the functionary that has come here asks any of the officials whether they are satisfied, they are to say, perfectly satisfied, your honor. And if anybody is not satisfied, I'll give him something to be dissatisfied about afterwards. Oh, I'm a sinner. A terrible sinner. Takes the hat box instead of his hat. Heaven only grant that I may soon get this matter over and done with. Then I'll donate a candle such as never been offered before. I'll levy a hundred pounds of wax from every damned merchant. Oh my, oh my. Come, let's go, Pietro Arvonovich. Tries to put the hat box on his head instead of his hat. Anton Antonovich, that's the hat box, not your hat. Governor, throwing the box down. If it's the hat box, it's the hat box. The deuce take it. And if he asks why the church of the hospital for which the money was appropriated five years ago has not been built, don't let them forget to say that the building was begun but was destroyed by fire. I sent a report about it, you know. Some blamed fool might forget and let out that the building was never even begun. And tell Dujimoda not to be so free with his fists. Guilty or innocent, he makes them all see stars in the cause of public order. Come on, come on, Dobchinsky! Goes out and returns. And don't let the soldiers appear on the streets with nothing on. That rotten garrison wear their coats directly over their undershirts. 
all go out. Scene 6. Anna Andreevna and Maria Antonovna rush in on the stage. Where are they? Where are they? Oh my god. Opening the door. Husband! Antosha! Anton! Hurriedly to Maria. It's all your fault. Dawdling, dawdling. I want a pin, I want a scarf. Runs to the window and calls. Anton, where are you going? Where are you going? What? He has come, the inspector? He has a mustache? What kind of mustache? Governor, from without. Wait, dear, later. Wait? I don't want to wait. The idea, wait. I only want one word. Is he a colonel or what, eh? Disgusted. There, he's gone. You'll pay for it. It's all your fault. You with your, Mama dear, wait a moment. I'll just pin my scarf. I'll come directly. Yes, directly. Now we've missed the news. It's all your confounded coquettishness. You heard the postmaster was here, and so you must prink and prim yourself in front of the mirror. Look on this side and that side and all around. You imagine he's smitten with you, but I can tell you he makes a face at you the moment you turn your back. It can't be helped, Mama. We'll know everything in a couple of hours. In a couple of hours? Thank you, a nice answer. Why don't you say in a month? We'll know still more in a month. She leans out of the window. Here, Avdotya. I say, have you heard whether anybody has come, Avdotya? No, you goose, you didn't. He waved his hands. Well, what of it? Let him wave his hands. But you should have asked him anyhow. You couldn't find out, of course, with your head full of nonsense and lovers. Hey, what? They left in a hurry. Well, you should have run after the carriage. Off with you, off with you at once, do you hear? Run and ask everybody where they are. Be sure and find out who the newcomer is and what he is like, do you hear? Well, peep through a crack and find everything out. What sort of eyes he has, whether they are black or blue. And be back here instantly, this minute, do you hear? Quick! 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 She keeps on calling, and they both stand at the window until the curtain drops. End of Act One <laughs>